Um, a very good afternoon to everybody and a warm welcome. I'm delighted to see so many old and new faces. I don't mean old in terms of age, I mean in terms of people who we at the Open University have worked with for many years um, at this event where we're going to debate how we value the World Service. As you'll all know, it's the biggest um, shake-up for the World Service in its well, since 1945, and there is an urgent need, really, to assess how we value world service, because how we valued it in the past is not necessary, necessarily relevant to how we will value it in the present and in the future. So I'm really, really pleased to see such a diverse group of people here um, where we can share our ideas and our different competing perspectives on how we value the World Service is a deliberately ambiguous, double-edged question. Because, of course, how we value the World Service is both an, a, subjective, um, uh, a subjective thing, but also implied in that question is um, our questions of methodology. What are the salient ways in which the value of the World Service um, can be assessed now and going forward. So it's that twin set of concerns that we hope to address today. And um, for a moment I'm going to pass over to Dr. Alban Webb, who's the Master of Ceremonies today, and he's going to say a few words. Um, so this is the first panel. What we're trying to do today uh, is bind together uh, a couple of elements at this critical moment in World Service history. Uh, we're about to present to you the findings of an AHRC uh, research report on the cultural value of the BBC World Service uh, and the innovations that we've uh, made in that respect. And of course, next week, uh, license fee funding of the World Service for the first time, well, for the first time. And that's that. And that changes things. So I'm just going to quickly introduce you to the uh, research team, and then we'll kick off. My job here is really to change the pages on the PowerPoint, uh, and then we'll have some discussion afterwards. And this is going to run until quarter past four, when we can all get a cup of tea at the end of it. Uh, this is an interdisciplinary team. So we have Marie Gillespie, who is Professor of Sociology at the Open University, Simon Bell, who is Professor of um, uh, Innovation and Methodology, at the Open University. I'm a historian at the Open University. And Colin Wilding, behind me, who was uh, BBC Audience Research. And you've, if you've ever heard of the global audience figure, currently 192 million and counting, Colin's the man who made it up. Right? Sorry, calculated. Um, <laughs> right, so without further ado, um, I think we should kick off with this presentation of our research report. And we're trying to show you something, but we're also trying to engage you with it. So if you have, we, we want questions about it that are critical and supportive and everything else. Okay? The Cultural Value Project. And it, is, it is quite ironic that only last week the spoof documentary WC1 <laughs> started. I can assure you we have nothing to do with that. <laughs> we, we are... There is, of course, a relationship between the cultural value of the World Service and the values uh, which underpin World Service, but our projects are entirely separate. <laughs> the uh, Cultural Value Project 
uh, ours is just one of about 70 projects that are funded across the uh, United Kingdom by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And the rationale behind uh, this UK-wide research program is that there's a pervasive feeling that the um, economic uh, value of culture and the arts has become too predominant in public and political discourse and that we're losing sight of the intrinsic value of, uh, of culture and of organisations, cultural organisations like the World Service and the British Council. So um, we're very lucky to have been uh, in receipt of Arts and Humanities Research Council funding, not just for this project, which is actually a relatively small project, but over the last seven years we've had successive um, uh, funds from the AHRC to research various aspects of World Service. And so this project builds on this prior open university research which has been very much a partnership with the World Service. And um, I have to um, acknowledge and, uh, and express some, our appreciation and gratitude to the World Service, which, you know, the staff have proved to be extremely open in uh, allowing us inside the organisation. Um, and we've worked in very close partnership with the audience research team who have uh, willingly uh, and patiently put up with our, our uh, ongoing uh, questions. Um, we've also uh, had lunchtime seminars, and the Open University, like the World Service, is a public service organisation, and so um, the ethos of our research is public funding for publicly engaged research, and that's what we've always tried to do. We've tried to contribute to debates within the World Service, to contribute to an informed strategy, policy and practice. But at the same time as academics, we try to keep a critical distance. Um, I'm trained as an anthropologist, and one of the first lessons in anthropology is that we try to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. We try to see self in other and other in the self. And I think that the World Service is one of those organisations par excellence that allows us to do just that. And that is why it is a very important organisation to understand, to study, and to find out um, what its future might hold. And its future, of course, is quite precarious. Nobody knows what is going to happen. We do know that people on the inside are working very hard to um, maintain... Um, and sustain it but perhaps the question that we need to be asking isn't so much why should uh, how should the world service survive but why and we're going to need to be able to explain um, to different kinds of constituencies the very different reasons as to why the world service is and remains a valuable organisation Okay, so why cultural value? I've mentioned a little bit about the predominance in public discourse about is, is, this, is this arts project, is this organisation, is it value for money? We want to ask about how you balance the economic, the political and cultural value and the kinds of rationales and assessments of economic, whether it's soft power, bringing commercial benefits to Britain... 
That's uh, one very dominant argument, the political rationales around soft power and diplomacy. But what about cultural value? We argue um, that the cultural value is the bedrock of the World Service because essentially over 80 years, um, it's been the, the way in which the World Service has communicated and connected audiences and publics around the world and increasingly is offering them creative opportunities to offer, uh, to uh, submit uh, user-generated content, and there are possibilities there for widening, widening participation via digital, something very close to our hearts at the Open University. But two of the most fundamental concepts underpinning our project is the extent to which an organisation like the World Service fosters international understanding, and secondly, reflective citizenship. These are absolutely fundamental, critical public service values, and those are the starting points of our research. Questions of value that are directing our research are, is the World Service a public good? Which publics does and should the World Service serve? Obviously, these publics and audiences are fundamentally changing, and as those audiences and users change, so does the value for those different groups. And what values inform its practices? Now, those three are very important questions, and they're going to be directly affected by the new funding and governance arrangements, and also by uh, by new technologies. We've been devising an approach which we're calling for the moment value analytics. And this has come about really as a, partly as a dissatisfaction with um, the concern around impact. All public organisations at the moment have to perform impact assessments. Those of you who work in, in universities know only too well uh, the consequences of impact evaluation on our, um, on our working lives. Um, and I think similarly at the World Service, the whole focus around impact um, has certain limitations and also dangers. So what we're trying to do is to develop approach Um, which avoids goal-driven performance targets. I'm not saying that they're necessarily bad, but we're trying to uh, devise an approach which complements rather than replaces any other existing measures of assessment within the organisation. And our approach is very concerned with um, offering a kind of 360-degree vantage point. And my colleagues, in a moment when they talk... Uh, will explain exactly what that means. So what we're trying to do with our value analytics is to broaden the scope of analysis beyond simple focus on audiences or users, to look at funders, to look at the people producing the programmes, to look at the people who are the senior managers and strategists within the organisation and those that work in between. The report that we... It's an interim report, and I have to emphasise it's an interim report because our final report will only be delivered at the end of May. 
So this is an opportune moment for us to really consult with you and to get your feedback on how we're doing so far. Um, in this document, we present what we're calling the cultural value framework. And as I said, it complements existing modes of assessment. We hope it adds value to the exis existing metrics. We claim that it's easy to use, it's adaptable to different con contexts, and it can map change, change in practice, change in programming, change in uh, policy over time. It's scalable, and it can be, um, and it can take into account different perspectives. And most of all, it's designed for collaborative use. Now, if that seems a little bit abstract, fret not, because it will be explained in a moment. And um, I'm going to hand over now to Colin Wilding, um, who's going to uh, talk about perspectives on World Service. Thank you, Marie. Um, I want to give you a bit of an insight into the, um, into the process of thinking we went through uh, to get to the cultural value framework that you will see in a minute. Um, when we started looking in this project at the way people uh, describe and talk about the value of the World Service, we started looking at public documents, internal documents, license agreements, key performance indicators, all these different things, public debate, all those different things. And um, it became apparent, uh, and it's obvious when you say it, that whilst almost everybody seems to think that the World Service is a good thing, when they actually start talking about why it's a good thing and why it needs to be preserved, you actually get quite a lot of different answers. There are some people who talk about it as a journal of record. Other people think it has to double its audience if it's going to, uh, going to be uh, successful. There are all sorts of different perspectives. So the World Service means different things to different people. But there's more to it than that. I'll get to this in a minute, don't worry. Um, there's more to it than that. When you read the documentation, the debates, the, um, the, the annual reports, uh, the internal performance review documents, in each of those cases, you're, you're effectively listening in on conversations between different groups of people. Because the way people talk about um, the value of world service depends not only on who they are, but whom they're talking to. So the, the, the language that's used, for example, in delivering performance indicators to a funder is quite different from the language that's used by a marketing department to the audience. And it's not about being two-faced. It's about different registers depending on what matters to different people. So in order to, to take an analytical approach to this, we started out by attempting to map out who the different actors are in this whole scenario. And uh, I'm, I'm not supposed to mention this, but there's a triangle here. Uh, broadly speaking, funders, organization, audience. That's a, that's a huge oversimplification. And once you start building this out, I know most of you can't see the detail here, but the audience behind it, the target public, DCMS, FCO, advertisers, UK public, all these various different actors. And here's the World Service. Um, and the relationships between these, we've got some grey arrows indicating some of the lines of communication that we're effectively eavesdropping on when we study the documents. 
And an important insight that comes out when you, when you look at this, in fact, not a new insight, something that I, I, uh, I picked up from a document from the 1980s, an internal document. Um, and that is that if you're going to look at World Service, don't, you mustn't look at it as a single organization. Because within the organization, different people have different values. And broadly speaking, again, an oversimplification. But you can divide the values of the people who produce the, the, the material and the values of the management. I know it's, you know, it's, not, it's not that close a divide, but broadly speaking, the sort of things that go into strategic documents and so on are not the sort of things that get a producer up in the morning and make them want to do a good program. So the values are different. And so it becomes important to, to map all this out, but it, this, this is already an oversimplification, and if you could see this, you'd probably be saying or you've left off so-and-so, or you ought to move so-and-so in, into a different place. And in fact, we had one, um, we had one diagram pre-1st of April, and this is the diagram post-1st of April, and you could draw different di diagrams at different times. But the next insight, which is the one which takes us forward, is that we found that when you look at this broadly, there are two axes. Cross here... Below and above this line is basically internal within the organization and outside the organization. And from left to right, we have basically audience facing and a clumsy term, but we will have to do strategic facing. So by dividing those axes, you get a framework. And that framework divides into four quadrants. And that's the beginning of our cultural value framework. And that's the point I hand over to you, Simon. Thank you. In 2008, I uh, published a book which had the subtitle Measuring the Immeasurable. And when you talk about cultural value, I think you're sort of in the same kind of territory. How on earth do we make a measurement here? Part of our task uh, in producing a cultural value framework is to produce a methodology which allows us to come to grips with the idea of measuring this potentially immeasurable thing. The quadrants that we produce here, obviously we're simplifying. Obviously we've got a very rich and complex background and we're trying to produce something which will match it in some way and give us some sense of understanding the way that we understand value. The framework is an overarching structure which we can layer on to the organisation. But if I take it one step further, you can start to uh, if you like, divorce the background from the foreground, think about the structure... Sorry, I realise that talking about methodology is not everyone's cup of tea, but it just gets me going all the time. But I will calm down. The, the quadrants uh, provide us with a structure. Now, if you think about the radiant uh, arms or components coming out, each of those could be representative of some sense of value or some way in which people register value. So if I move on again, we wanted to do more than measure in the same way as our cultural value framework does more than, for example, a composite indicator like GDP does. GDP is a very blunt tool. It measures something, and it says it's a universal value, and then people argue about it forever because it's not. What we're trying to say here is that every component, in a sense, can be registered by different groups in different ways. And this is one of the reasons why our approach is ultimately to be handed over and used by groups to assess themselves and to, to measure their own views. But if you take a, a view like this, we have the quadrants, 
representing the various segments of the organisation and its stakeholders. We have the radiant arms, five to each quadrant, so we're saying these might be ways in which we assess elements of value. And then we have the band. And in the band, we call it the, the, uh, the band of equilibrium or a band of sustainability. We have some sense of each of these values, how would they be if they were sustainable and how would they be if they were in excess or in deficit? So purely as a theoretical example, the next slide gives a, an example of, this is not taken from anything, but it's a, a swift visual. We call this an amoeba. For obvious reasons, it looks a bit like an amoeba. It's an irregular shape. But it gives you an instant sense of understanding if you know how it's been produced. That is to say, values within the band are acceptable or seen as sustainable or in equilibrium. Values outside the band are in excess. Values inside the band are in deficit. It gives you, a, so if you like, a perfect representation of cultural value using this device would be a circle within the band, and that would represent everything in harmony, everything in equilibrium. What I'm talking about so far is in theory. It's an example of uh, the way that we could assess and visually represent cultural value in any given context. To give it some sense of what it really means, we've got three examples to show you. Hungary, 1956. On the 24th of October, 1956, a student demonstration in Potofi Square in Budapest uh, turned into a full-scale revolution. And by the 4th of November, there had been a battle for uh, hopes and liberties seemingly won and then brutally crushed by Soviet troops early on the morning of the 4th of November. About a day before, I think, British troops arrived on the uh, Mount Sinai uh, land as, as paratroopers to start the Suez War. Now, amoebas uh, and methods like this, uh, as an historian who's used to being locked up in an archive looking at dusty files, this is not my natural territory. Um, but I do want to say a couple... So, in a way, I'm, I'm like an end user of this methodology that's been delivered uh, by my colleagues. And having used it to create this, I just want to say a couple of things that I learned as a process, along with my colleagues Jess McFarlane and Andrew Smith, um, about how we constructed this amoeba uh, and what it allows you to do as an analytical tool. So, you will see all of these component spokes. They all tell a, very, a particular story. You could go and research and analyse that story. You could analyse and research the story of participation or economic value from uh, funding of information services by the British government, something the British government does every time it does analyse information services. It always thinks there's a strong argument for that. Um, you, but behind each story, there are universes of other stories, complexities, logics, rationalities and contingencies. Uh, for example, on this, you might want to take utility value to audiences during the Hungarian uprising. Now, obviously, uh, international broadcasters were of an extreme paramount importance during the Hungarian uprising. But here's an interesting fact. 200,000 people left Hungary during the Hungarian uprising. 1% of the population. So we have some self-selecting but fairly good survey data. Only 4% of those people used regime media to learn about things happening in Hungary. 80% used 
international broadcasters and the BBC in particular to find out what was happening in Hungary. So if you know that story, then suddenly you've got a conversation uh, about um, uh, the relationship between utility and trust. So there are lots of stories behind. uh, And so you're able to analyse particular stories, but in the whole you're able to look at them in the context of a much wider perspective, the larger world in which these activities take place. So you simultaneously get a feel for the fine-grained detail um, and the bigger picture. And so it's a very quick and easy way, as you're going through your research, to construct one of these things, uh, to get a wide range of data across a number of fields. So that's, that's one point, how we put it together, suddenly delivered a range of understanding across the piece, even when we were only looking at specific elements. The second point is that it's a relational tool. You're able to see very readily possible potential connections between component parts of the whole that you might otherwise not have apprehended. It enables you to see where more research needs to be done, and it enables you to link components in ways that would either take you much longer or perhaps you may not have thought of doing. Uh, An example here is trust. Trust is a very high uh, score in this amoeba. And again, back to the survey data after the Hungarian uprising, uh, it was extremely high for the BBC above all other international broadcasters. Now, the diplomatic value of overseas broadcasting is extremely high at this point, and there is a relationship between trust in the BBC World Service and the diplomatic dividend that Britain gets from its activities. The view of Britain from Hungarians is enhanced by the work of the, of, of, of the BBC World Service. But what does trust rely on? Trust, in this instance, and the diplomatic value it delivers, relies partly on this, legacy. So the reputation the Hungarian service built during the Second World War is, dis- is very clearly reflected ten years later in the way that audiences think about BBC World, Services, World Service broadcast to uh, Hungary. It also relies on the professional capacities of staff, the ability to deliver across very short broadcasting periods with jamming of broadcasts, with very poor uh, transmitter stock, low technology score, uh, to deliver what audiences need. And it also relies on this, the cosmopolitan value of staff within the Hungarian section, the ability for Hungarian staff to speak within cultural and linguistic idioms to other Hungarians in Hungary means an awful lot in terms of the, how the voice of the BBC is heard and the trust with which it is heard. So you could go on, but really what that allows you to do is tell stra- stories across the amoeba um, it, uh, and to analyse the relationship of parts of the whole that you might not have otherwise done. It brings up thoughts and perspectives that you otherwise wouldn't see without that. So this isn't a definitive guide in, by any respect, uh, as has been mentioned, just as news can never be objective. But in my experience, it's, a, it's quite a useful analytical and conceptual tool that complements existing measures and extends our understanding. So there you go, view of a user. A completely different example now... Um, This is our analysis of the 100 Women series, that uh, season that took place in October 2013. Um, A whole season uh, across the month culminating in a major uh, conference uh, that was uh, streamed across the world. Uh, The season itself uh, playing out uh, across all the World Service platforms. Um, 
and contributing to the World Service's aim of fostering a global conversation. We, uh, we use this season as, a, a, as an exercise amongst the group to develop the techniques for uh, using the amoeba, populating the amoeba, and so on. Obviously, we shouldn't be doing this. This should be done collaboratively within the organization as a way of reviewing, because it takes you beyond simplistic questions like, was the content good? Um, did the audience like it? Things like that. Into a much more nuanced assessment of how that season played out from the point of view of the people who were producing it, the managers who were resourcing it and looking at the strategic implications, the the funders and the stakeholders who are trying to, to achieve or want the World Service to achieve something uh, according to their values and, of course, to the audience themselves. So against all these different values, we took, um, we took evidence from a range of sources. Um, there's the, 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 the BBC World Service's Global Minds panel who are able to give very detailed response, but they're very keen users typically. Um, Analysis of web traffic on, on the BBC's website. Analysis of uh, Twitter traffic with the hashtag 100women. Interviews with staff. Um, observations at the conference itself. So we took all that evidence and put it together and between us made these assessments. And broadly speaking, um, it's a very good picture. Uh, if you look, you'll see there's nothing far enough in to be inside the band of sustainability, so there's nothing problematic here. Uh, there is a description of each of these components. I know most of you can't even see the labels here, but there is a description of what we mean by uh, participation for the audience. And what that description uh, it effectively describes what, what really good performance would be. And then we looked at the evidence, um, and we judged to what extent the actual performance matched up against that ideal. So to give you some examples, um, on distinctiveness, we've rated it really high because this, uh, this season uh, produced material that um, just wouldn't have been otherwise, you know, voices of women that otherwise wouldn't be represented. This was the sort of material that nobody else was doing. So high on distinctiveness. Reach, we looked at the, uh, the data and it suggested that, um, that on the website... Uh, that the 100 women material performed only moderately well compared to similar activities or compared to other activities. So it's coming down in the moder moderately well. Uh, professional and creative, there's plenty of evidence of the creativity of the staff in making the most of the resources and so on. Slightly lower on quality because the, the evidence indicated that, the, that the, from the manager's point of view, not from the user's point of view, from the manager's because the... Um, Compared to other seasons, this, um, the 100 women season was not that well resourced. So they were, doing, they were producing their creativity with relatively small resources. I know somebody might question this, but this is what we got from the evidence. So that's the sort of analysis that we're doing. Um, and um, it, they, they did not appear from the Twitter analysis and so on to be a sustained engagement with the material on, on the part of the audience. So engagement from the, from the producer's point of view and from <coughs> participation from the audience point of view, both relatively no, uh, low. Not such as to be a problem, in our judgment, um, 
But by looking at this and seeing where the high, and, uh, high points and the low points are, we hope that within an internal process it would be possible to get out of this information that you could take forward um, and, uh, and, and use for review for, future, for the future. So there's a lot more detail that, that, that can go into this. Um, what this forces you to do is to get beyond simplistic key performance indicators, to look at all the stakeholders and what matters to them, not necessarily all with equal priority, but all out there where you can see them. Okay? I have to admit that when I uh, first uh, tried this out, I was a skeptic. Um, it doesn't come naturally to an anthropologist or a sociologist uh, or to a historian. Um, but I have to say that the process of putting together <laughs> the components which you'll find in your booklet and which were derived from our almost a decade of research, um, they're perhaps not definitive at the moment, but uh, we arrived at criteria of assessment for each of these components. And the point I'd like to make is that it's the collaborative process of doing this that probably has m more val most value, more than <coughs> the end product. And I can appreciate that people in the audience looking at this would say, how on earth can you map something so nuanced and complex as cultural value in a, a pink amoeba? So uh, believe me, I am and was fully with you. Um, but I think the process is very, very important. Looking to the Baluchistan earthquake, some of you may remember that on the uh, 24th of September last year, there was a powerful earthquake that shook, shook Baluchistan. And that's the, uh, a remote, poverty-stricken southwest province in Pakistan. Um, the 7.7 magnitude quake flattened houses and left about 300 people dead and 300,000 people homeless. Now, the case study that we based this amoeba on was a special broadcast um, in one of BBC Urdu's flagship daily news programs called Serbin. Serbin um, is a household name in poor, remote parts of Pakistan and has been for many, many decades. The research that we based this amoeba on included um, informal interviews with production team members, content and discourse analysis of the actual broadcast, some audience research um, on the BBC Urdu service in these areas, as well as um, a few years ago on the 70th anniversary of the BBC Urdu service with David Page, where are you David? David's sitting here. Um, we organized a witness seminar um, where, and Kalesh as well is here, I think. Um, and we looked again at those transcripts about the BBC Urdu service, its historic and its contemporary role within South Asia. 
So diverse sources of evidence. Um, okay, so very briefly, and in the report, we're only really summarising in the sketchiest ways how we arrived at these um, uh, scores. If you look at it from the point of view of the funders, uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office currently, uh, this programme exemplifies lifeline broadcasting at its best. It had exceptionally high humanitarian value because it focused on an issue that received little attention from other news providers. This story wasn't being covered elsewhere. BBC Urdu service, the producers were, they managed to access a very rem this very remote part of the world and using uh, their members of staff, they uh, were able to gather the voices of local people who effectively co-produced this, uh, uh, this special broadcast. So if you, if you look at the user and uh, public, the high score around distinctiveness and a very good score around participation, you can see that... Um, in terms of utility, participation, and uh, it, was, it scored very, very, very highly. And more broadly, World Service audience research suggests that some 74% of people, households in this area, uh, regularly tune into uh, Serbian uh, um, on, on radio. I listened to this special broadcast, and I have to say it was one of the most vivid and chilling um, programmes that I, I've recently listened to. Um, the extraordinary combination of voices, the power of the human voice, and this is, of course, why Well Service Radio has captured the imagination of so many people over so many decades, because it has that capacity to transport people into a courtyard, into a zone of devastation, and to create a very profound sense of empathy. And this program hit all those um, um, very uh, um, traditional, if you like, qualities of lifeline broadcasting. I'm not going to say very much more now because I think it's um, you, you, what we're trying to do is give you a general picture of a framework, a tool, a device that hopefully could challenge, provoke <coughs> new ways of thinking. It's not perfect. We haven't fully completed this task, but we look forward to your feedback. And um, just to... Yeah, there you can see that it's quite interesting to see how they look together. And just as a final point, these, the three that you just saw, saw show, show the sort of visualisations of variations in value. And I think it's important to say that these are illustrative. They're indicative. They're not definitive. I think one of the ways in which I think about it is as a lecturer, somebody who has spent many days and nights poring over student essays, we set criteria of assessment. 
We read student essays, we read their theses, according to the, and we score them according to those criteria of assessment. The scores that we give are based on those criteria of assessment. So at the end of the day, it's a professional judgment. And a very similar process occurred in the collaborative process that we engaged in in scoring these. Now, if seven people from the World Service did the scoring, had the debates that we had, and I can assure you that there wasn't a consensus, there was a battle, there was conflicting views, and there still are conflicting views within the course team about um, how, how you actually score. But the discussion we had led to a very nuanced, uh, high-quality discussion around value. So we believe that this kind of framework, with some improvement and with your helpful feedback, hopefully, could inform organisational strategy, debate and practice. And we think that its true value is in offering this wider perspective, a kind of composite perspective. And so we look forward to your views. And we hope that you will challenge us because it is all challengeable. Thank you for listening. Right. Um, so what we've got 20 minutes for questions now. We're going to break at quarter past. Um, would you like to start with your question, Jean? Jean uh, Seaton. Um, I fall in love with the amoeba. I still, I understand that you use different evidence along each spoke. Yeah. Am I right that you assign it something like something pretty crude, like high? I, I don't mind crude. Crude yes, is simple. Yes. High, medium, and low. Yes. And that is all you do. You 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 sit around and you say, um, it's high national, it's high humanitarian, or it's low humanitarian. But you don't try and say, oh, it's 40, it's 40, marking comes to mind. You know, it's, it, it's, it's got to touch the it's 65s. A two it's a 2-1-ish, but with a, with a 60. So you, 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 you divide whatever evidence you have, because presumably the evidence comes in, into three quite simple bands. That is, that is my question. It's actually more like uh, seven. It's a 1-7 to seven scale from sort of unsustainably poor up to unsustainably good um, uh, and in the, the three to five I think is that, that middle band um, for technical reasons you know we've used percentages in here but it, it is a qualitative assessment at this stage now there are all sorts of possible developments you could, you could make with this um, we, we've discussed in workshops uh, issues about matching this against expectations um, against uh, about the relative priorities. Does it, you know, do, do the audience um, matter? Actually, uh, uh, Auburn, can we run back to an amoeba so that it's easier to wave my hands? Um, that, <laughs> so, you know, it, does it matter? Uh, do, the, do the audience matter more than the producers? I mean, the answer is that everybody's voice, the point about this is everybody's voice is get, getting heard. But what we are doing here, I know it's expressed broadly numerically, but it's an evidence-based qualitative assessment and that's why it has to be collaborative. You can't just come in from the outside um, and, and say, you know, 
we've decided the score is this. It's a, it's a sort of consensus. For me, um, I've you know, spent years dealing with key performance indicators where we've had real, apparently real data, and we've, we've plowed the, the data through the computer, and we've come up and we've said, you have a score of 56. Is that good or is that bad? You know, and then the answer is, nobody knows and probably nobody cares. Whereas with this, you can unpick it and say, where are the strengths and where are the weaknesses? But it, it, you know, it is collaborative. You might set expectations and say, for this season to perform well, it should reach 20 million people. And then if you only reach 10 million people, you've not done well. You might do that. That's an option. But what we're trying to do here is get a visual representation of an assessment. Does that, does that help? It's, it's in a sense, it's a sense of calibrating. So that you could take, you could take quantitative values, uh, and in fact, we've done that as well. So you can take quantitative values or qualitative values. If you can calibrate them to a seven-point scale, you can represent them on the diagram, and you can compare and contrast unlikely indicators against each other. And that's also part of the power of the thing: is that unlikely things can be put on one scale and, and compared and contrasted. Fine. Now, we have a list of people who want to ask a question. So if I could ask you to keep it relatively brief, because we've got another ten minutes and we've got about six questions to get through. So, Graham, starting with you. One of the funny things about this afternoon, and it's a challenge to you all, I think, and I, you know, don't get me wrong, I have a great admiration. I've worked with Marie and Colin and Alban over the past eight or nine years, or Colin much longer than that, 40 years, nearly 30 years. So I have an admiration for you all, and please don't take this personally. But, you know, I've, this is how I talk, and I, why should I change the habits of a lifetime? Why are we not talking about culture? It's an irony, really, that the other form of culture has virtually disappeared from the World Service. That The first time we actually talk about the cultural value of the BBC, most of it's gone. Most of what we, otherwise, in the other meaning of the word culture, there's no music any longer, no drama, no poetry, no nothing else, that the, 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 uh, uh, perhaps the oasis of outlook, but even that may be smothered by the advancing sands of the desert of news on its own. News is terribly important, and it's so important, that's why it mustn't take over everything. It needs to be in perspective. World Service is a pale shadow of it, what it was in terms of cultural value. Opinion. Graham, I think what we'll move straight on to the next question because that's more of a comment on where culture exists within the organisation. Um, I think just the two points. One is if we took this kind of further and made it more public or opened it out to, to people, I do think the word amoeba is a mistake. Um, <laughs> so that's just the short piece of feedback. Secondly, um, I think what I feel as somebody who works with world in World Service is that it, it lacks a certain context, i.e., and the thing that's sort of really drawn it um, out to me is when you I look at the description of distinctiveness, um, we are using as the comparison of distinctiveness other international news providers, and I don't think that's the people that we're competing against day to day. In, certainly in language services, it's the local providers. And so if you look at the Baluchistan Baluch uh, earthquake, I'd be very surprised if other Pakistani broadcasters weren't covering that, and actually probably it wasn't so high on the distinctive scale. Okay, I think if we move on to Matilda down at the front here, and then we might answer uh, those together. Hi, my name is Matilda Anderson. I'm a PhD student at The Open University and I'm studying participation, audience participation at the BBC African Services. And Colin used to be my boss when <laughs> I was at the World Service. 
<laughs> so um, it, it strikes me that, and I, thank you for a very interesting presentation. I think this, um, the amoebas tell a much interesting story than just one single figure, the global audience figure. So it's a very interesting, rich framework. Uh, it strikes me that the amoeba for uh, the Hungarian uprising and the Pakistani earthquake are, have more variation in them than the, the 100 women. So um, that, that amoeba looks a bit bland. And is that because it's, this framework works really well on particular incidents in particular uh, service, within particular services rather than as a whole for the BBC World Service? So, and that kind of leads us on to, you know, what is the BBC World Service and, and can you measure the whole of it? Because maybe you have to look into all the, all the different parts instead. So I don't know if you think it's a fair reflection that those amoebas are more interesting or, and does it work for the whole World Service? Okay, what I might do there is get an answer to those things because that's about the distinctiveness uh, in, in the categories uh, and also about, you know, what represents a good amoeba. Or, you know, what is, it, what, what is the amoeba you'd most like to have? You know, that sort of thing. And so if we maybe answer that, and then we could go on to a question from Peter. Who would like to take that? Yes, please go. Um, and thanks for the questions, because, or the comments, because they're, very, they're, they're quite helpful. Because, in a sense, when you structure a, a brief PowerPoint presentation, as you will all know, you're kind of thinking about what do we sweep in, and then all the stuff that you don't have time to talk about. Um, all the components are variable, and they, they can be set by the, by the stakeholders who you're talking to. So the components that we've got here are the ones that we chose because we thought they were useful and valuable, and therefore they are contestable. If you like, the 20 components represent a segmented view of what we think of value, and that's one take, and you, that's contestable. This is sort of... Um, kind of grown-up stuff, because we're not saying that these 20 are definitive or fixed. We're saying that this is what we're suggesting, and this is the pattern that we get when we do the analysis, and this is what we think it looks like. Please disagree. Think of reasons why this isn't so. Think of reasons why it's better, worse, whatever. But in that sense, it's a, it's a challenge rather than a statement of fact. One of the problems we have with a lot of indicators, sorry, I'll, I can get onto a rant here, I do recognise that coming on. One of the problems that we have with a lot of indicators is they're used as devices to hammer organisations into shape. And that is not the intention with what we have here. This isn't a, a, a device to help organisations to think about themselves and to challenge their own internal value structures. End of rant. Thank you. Peter Horrocks, uh, Director of the World Service. Um, I'd like to leave aside any questions about methodology or terminology and take it for what it is, clearly a good faith uh, attempt to try and understand the World Service and rather to learn from what you've done rather than pick it apart. Um, how has the World Service changed according to this evidence? And if you can say so, whose interests is it serving better or worse or more or less than it did in the past? I think what our research showed so far is that World Service is stu still doing really well in its traditional lifeline broadcasting areas where there's not too much competition. And I take your point that, yes, lo in Baluchistan, local broadcasters would have been covering it, but perhaps not in quite the same way. Um, and I think we've got evidence to show that this special broadcast was really special. Otherwise, you know, 
we're, we're using this as, an, as a kind of model of good practice in a way. Where the World Service is not doing so well, and of course I'm glossing over a great deal, is in using digital to widen participation. And that we have found across at the case studies that we've worked on, and when we've got quite a few more case studies in process on digital, and what we find, find is that there is still a, a very big tension between um, taking risks with digital and using it creatively and taking that leap towards um, making better use of user-generated content. And I think that this is partly a resource issue because it's quite clear that that's one of the major reasons why the widening of participation around digital is not happening. Um, uh, so that's, that's a, a very brief response to what's a very complex and difficult question. And I think that if, if World Service is to go forward, then it's going to have to have a very serious think about how it widens participation using digital technologies. Having said that, digital users are still only a very small percentage, a very small number uh, compared to the kinds of uh, shortwave and medium wave radio audiences still. So we, we, we don't underestimate the challenges that you face and the difficult strategic decisions that you have. And I completely accept um, uh, um, your, your Graham's point. Um, uh, thank you, Graham, for your usual feisty uh, contestation. But I completely accept the point that the cultural programming, of course, has has gone. And again, that was the result of difficult difficult decisions and challenges. And if you look at the history, as we have done, and you'll see at the back of this this book, you know, we've produced volumes like the, the one with Hamid and Wasafiri where we've shown that actually the, the cultural value of the World Service is largely a product of its uh, language service staff whose language skills, whose artistic, literary, linguistic skills have been the bedrock of the cultural value of the World Service. And one of the uh, very, well, one of the great risks I think, of World Service going forward is that World Service will not have a, a voice at the top table and that the staff, the pivotal role that the language service staff have played as cultural intermediaries, of course they don't see themselves as cultural intermediaries, but effectively that's what they have been. They're absolutely vital to what the BBC... And I was very pleased to hear Peter... Was it Peter? No, it was Tony Hall in a recent um, uh, speech he gave, and he said the World Service is the BBC. And we're going to, have, we're going to see a lot of media coverage as 1414 comes up. And I was interviewed yesterday by um, a, a journalist at The Economist, and he said, well, tell me, what do you think? Do you think that there's life in the World Service yet? That if it, under the licence fee, will it thrive or die? Well, it's simply too early to say, but I think that the fact that we're all here in this room and we're trying to understand what its value is and we're trying, um, albeit uh, in 
a very exploratory and experimental way to bring a picture, a composite picture of how we might rethink value, I think that's testimony to the fact that we do care, we do care about its public value, and I would just hope that we could continue working with some of you in this room to refine it, to develop it, to find a different name, not amoeba, to make the uh, scoring more transparent, uh, to show you the data on which this uh, is based. And I do think, I have to disagree with you, Gray. I do think it tells you about cultural value. I think it tells you not just about cultural value. I think it begins to bring the, the political, the economic, and the social, the different forms of value together in a way that I honestly cannot see that um, as valuable as are uh, the kind of research reports that we ourselves have done and that I see that give you lots of statistics of the reaches, this percent, this, the value of this is that you have a kind of picture. And as I said, it's the process of doing it that is an extremely valuable internal tool. I Sorry, my so, round well, over. Well, just very quickly, we have time for... Ten seconds from Simon. We have one last question from over there, and then we're going to have a cup of tea. I think we're all agreed it's no longer amoebas, it's butterflies. It's <laughs> <laughs> a guy called Ten Brink, Dutch guy called Ten Brink, invented the word amoeba for it, so it's, it's his fault, not ours. Um, just quickly, Peter, on, on, the, on the more... This is a snapshot. Um, it's possible to take a number of snapshots over time to see how the amoeba, or whatever, moves over time. You can also backcast, and you can also do scenario planning with it. So you can use it as a timeline as well, and that gives you a better... If we'd done that, we'd have a better answer to your question. One last question for St. John. John Tusa, Claw Leadership Programme. Um, I suggest that the quadrant is really not helpful and that you need a different shape, and I'll tell you why. Because you separate management and journalism, and I think this is, A, completely flawed, and any organization, and there are some, even some in the uh, arts world, there are not many now, where there is a gap between what managers do and what the people who produce the value, journalism, in the case of the BBC, art, uh, elsewhere. And um, I don't see, I mean, I think any organization which worked like that is dead in the water, where you've got management there and uh, the people who make the programs or the art somewhere else with a different set of values. I mean, if they do have a different set of values, it is dead in the water. And um, so I, I think that's really not helpful, either in describing what happens or, I think, in explaining how an organization, particularly like the BBC World Service, works. So I would humbly suggest that you find another shape for putting these extremely interesting numbers and figures in. Um, so we've had uh, a nuts and bolts session on new methods and thoughts and concepts and ideas uh, and thank you for that and thank you for your comments on that after our cup of tea we're going to be with a speech from Peter Horrocks uh, on the precipice of a new uh, funding and uh, digital era for the World Service followed up by a panel by, uh, with some really interesting views so uh, come back revitalised after your cup of tea and thank you very much indeed thank you